Have you ever wondered how different religions actually get started? Many religions are formed because one person believes that they have some kind of vision or new spiritual insight. Buddhism began when Siddhartha Gautama reached a point of spiritual enlightenment that he called nirvana. And the result was a teaching called the Eightfold Path for living a spiritual life. Islam began when Muhammad had a spiritual vision and the result was the Quran. Hinduism did not start with one individual but with a community, a community called the Aryans and they wrote down sacred writings called the Vedas. Judaism began when God appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and through those appearances there were covenants that came into being, religious laws that people were supposed to follow. And then there's Christianity, unlike anything else. Because Christianity began with a crucifixion. Christianity began with the execution of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Our faith is unique because it began not with a vision, not with someone claiming a sense of new spiritual enlightenment, not with a new religious book or a new set of religious laws. Christianity began with suffering. Suffering that was done for you and for me. We follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. And when I think of that, then I find myself scratching my head when Christians say, you know, the life of faith ought to be easy. (laughs) It wasn't easy for Jesus. And sometimes it's not easy for us. And the fact is there is a spiritual battle taking place in this world, a battle for the hearts and the minds and the souls of humanity. And so it's no surprise that there are people who don't want to listen to or follow the teachings of Jesus. And there are some people who actively fight against Him and His truth. And as a result, followers of Jesus often face hardship, great difficulties and challenges. And some Christians, some Christians even die as martyrs. Christianity only was a few years old when we lost our first martyr. His name was Stephen, and he was a man of great, great faith. And his story is hard to read and hard to hear, but it's a story vital for us to grasp because Stephen shows us how to follow Jesus even as he pays with his life. We need to come to grips with the implications of the story of Stephen. And the story of his martyrdom begins in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8. Let's take a look. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, 
Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew, which means he grew up outside of Israel under the influence of Greek culture. And at some point, he immigrated to Israel to live among his fellow Jews. There's a lot of Hellenistic Jews that live in Jerusalem, and they have their own synagogue. We see it here in our text. It's called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. That's where Stephen worships. And like all of the men in that synagogue, at times he is called upon to read Scripture and to lead prayers and even to teach during worship. And at some point, this faithful Jew hears about Jesus. He becomes a follower of Christ. Now, as a Christian, Stephen doesn't turn his back on his Jewish heritage. He simply understands that heritage differently. And so he honors Moses, but he recognizes that God has now initiated a new covenant beyond the covenant of Moses, a new covenant through Jesus Christ. Stephen honors the Jewish temple as a place of worship, but he understands that God does not live in a building. God resides among his people. And most importantly, Stephen honors Jesus as his Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And so whenever he has the opportunity to teach in the synagogue, he tells his fellow Jews about Jesus. And that message from Scripture is reinforced by the fact that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, equips Stephen to perform miracles, described here in our passage as wonders and signs. Powerful teaching of biblical truth, reinforced by powerful miracles. Stephen's teaching does not go against Scripture, but it does go against the beliefs and the traditions of the Jews. Some of them begin to debate him, but they are unable to undermine his claims. As we see here, the Holy Spirit gives Stephen the wisdom he needs to counteract the arguments of the Jews. And as we read verse 10, do you realize that that is a specific fulfillment of a specific promise of Jesus? Matthew chapter 10, verse 18. The words of Jesus are recorded and he says that when we are called to give an account of our faith, the Holy Spirit will come in that moment and give us the words we need. So Stephen personally experiences the reality of that promise. He doesn't wither then in the face of opposition. And can you imagine the sense of peace and calm that he feels when he realizes that God's Spirit is personally guiding his conversation and helping him to articulate biblical truth? That must be an incredible feeling as he sees the promise of Jesus become real. And yet the problem doesn't go away. The situation grows worse. The Jews cannot silence him through debate. 
So they turn to force. Let's read on. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses. False witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. That's a reference to the temple where they're meeting. He never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is forcibly placed on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. In order to gain a conviction, they recruit witnesses who commit perjury by giving false testimony. Lying to the Sanhedrin is a crime worthy of death if you're prosecuted and convicted. And so these witnesses commit a capital crime in order to try and convict Stephen of a capital crime. And their testimony, their lies, it is so insidious what they do. They take Stephen's new understanding of Moses and the law and the temple and the Messiah and they twist it. They distort his beliefs in order to achieve their desired result, which is his And I can't even begin to imagine how stressful that trial must be. If the full Sanhedrin is present, it means that there are 71 angry men in that room, plus witnesses. And not one of them would likely be on his side. Stephen stands alone. And he knows that if he's convicted of blasphemy, that he will be put to death. So this is not some academic religious argument. Stephen's life is on the line. And he knows it. How does he respond to that pressure? Does he display fear? Anxiety? Desperation? No. Stephen displays serenity under fire. He's calm. He is so amazingly calm that the look on his face is described as being the look of an angel. The members of the Sanhedrin thinks that he looks like a heavenly messenger. In that pressure cooker environment, how can Stephen be so serene? There's only one answer. It has to be the peace that God gives through the Holy Spirit. This is what God does when we choose to trust Him in moments of incredible stress and pressure. 
Stephen's experiencing the reality of God's promise that when we allow God to embrace us with his love, that his perfect love can and will drive out all of our fears. Even the fear of pain and suffering and death. Stephen is calm. He's at peace. So he listens as these witnesses parade through and give all their distorted testimony against him, and he displays serenity under fire. That's just the first phase of the trial. The next phase takes a while, and it's far too lengthy to read this morning, so I want to give you a summary. Stephen responds at length to the charges against him, and he makes three major points. First, he reminds these Jewish leaders that their revered ancestors, people like Abraham and Jacob and Moses, all of them were personally asked by God to do something new and to be obedient to what God asked, and every one of them had to contend with people who resisted, people who did not want to be obedient to what God asked. By making that point, Stephen is saying, you are resisting what God is trying to do here through Jesus, our Messiah. You're being disobedient. And second, Stephen highlights the fact that faithful men and women worshipped God long before the Jews ever built a temple. Clearly, God does not live just in one special building. So Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin, we can appreciate this building, but we don't worship this building. We worship God. And in his third and final point, Stephen becomes filled with righteous indignation, and he closes his testimony with some very pointed and direct words. I'd like us to pick up his comments starting in chapter 7, verse 51. This is at the end of a long, long speech by Stephen as he makes his defense, and he's now on a roll. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's That's the Messiah. And now you betrayed and murdered him. That's Jesus the Messiah. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Hard words. Bold words. And Stephen looks those men in the eye and says, throughout your history, You've consistently rejected the messengers of God. And that criticism would be particularly hard for the Sanhedrin to hear because they know it's true. The rabbis of that day consistently taught that Israel was accountable for being a group of people with stiff necks and hard hearts, which caused them to ignore and even kill the prophets of God. So Stephen is saying, 
When you murdered Jesus, you were following in the footsteps of your ancestors. Stephen is being so bold. He knows this trial is rigged. He knows he's unlikely to get out of this alive, so he speaks boldly, directly, and clearly against all of this distorted testimony that's been presented. And how is it and why is it that he's so bold? He's bold because he trusts God. He's bold because he trusts the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's bold, oh, we have to hear this, he's bold because he lives with an eternal perspective and he knows that this life is not all there is. And he's bold because... Before he dies, he wants them to know the truth of God. And by speaking so boldly and directly, he wants to give them a chance to lay aside their pride, to lay aside their anger, and back down. And if they don't, they'll just prove his point by killing him. They will kill yet another messenger of God. And sadly, tragically, the men of the Sanhedrin cannot get past their anger. Let's look what happens next, starting in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, Saul approved of their killing him. As Stephen speaks boldly God's truth, These men of the Sanhedrin are are cut to the heart. It means that they are convicted to the depths of their souls. And how do people respond when they're convicted? Some people, under spiritual conviction, repent. They express sorrow and regret. That's how many of us came to Jesus. We were confronted, we were convicted, and in sorrow and regret, we repented and received God's mercy and forgiveness. The best way we can respond to conviction And some people, like these men, they respond to this deep spiritual conviction with hatred and violence. And it transforms them. Their faces become transformed with hatred and anger. But Stephen, his face is transformed with joy because he sees this amazing vision of Jesus standing next to the Heavenly Father. The Lord reveals himself to to, to Stephen in that moment to remind him, you are not alone. To remind him, eternity awaits. And that vision sustains him as he is dragged out and stoned. 
Stoning was a ritualistic way to kill someone for religious crimes. And so it followed a pattern. So they wouldn't kill somebody in the temple, so Stephen is dragged out of the temple. He's dragged out of the city, and he's taken to a wall of the city. He's pushed over that wall and falls about two stories and lands in a pit from which there's no escape. He's probably badly injured by that fall. Those who testified against him, those witnesses, they're the first ones to pick up stones. And they hurl them down on Stephen as he lies there helpless. And then others join in until he's dead. Now before they die, victims of stoning are supposed to recite this prayer. May my death atone for all my sins. Did you notice Stephen doesn't pray that? He offers two different prayers. He first prays to Jesus, the one who actually can atone for our sins because of his death. And then with virtually his last breath, Stephen asks God not to hold this sinful act against his killers. Stephen displays mercy toward people who express only hatred. How can he do that? He can do that because he's embraced the teaching of Jesus. As Jesus said, recorded in Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, humanly, we know that's not possible. However, when we choose to be guided by the Holy Spirit, we can respond to hatred with mercy. Because of his faith in Jesus, Stephen did not die full of bitterness or anger. He wasn't vengeful. He died in peace, requesting mercy for those who robbed him of life. Stephen's not guilty of anything. He's just a follower of Jesus, and it cost him his life. He's become the first martyr of the church. Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, says very specifically, he fell asleep. That's because Christians don't die permanently. We're raised to the next life to enjoy God forever, and just as Jesus rose, so will we. That's the hope we have, that hope of eternity. And it's that hope which enables us to face the hardships and the sufferings of this life. Life unfolds so differently when we live with an eternal perspective. And I have absolutely no doubt that when Stephen opened his eyes for the first time in heaven, that the first thing he saw was Jesus standing there, arms open wide, saying, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet, as we reflect on this story, I think it raises a question. Why did God let it happen? Why didn't he stop it? 
Stephen was a man of such great faith and he loved God. Why didn't God show Stephen some love and rescue him from this horrible, painful death? And the answer to that is so important for us to hear. It's because God's love is not limited by nor limited to this life. Everything God does is done from an eternal perspective. And that changes everything. And furthermore, we need to recognize that there are times, so many times, when God asks us to go through hardship and suffering and then he produces some amazingly good results from what we have endured. That's certainly true in the case of Stephen. His death has two significant results. First, the, the Jewish anger at Christianity is not, not stamped out by killing Stephen. In fact, it's, it's inflamed. So the Jews start to persecute all the Christians, causing them to flee from Jerusalem. Now, that's not good. It's harsh. It's horrible. Those Christians become refugees in need of a safe place to live. And yet, they're not just refugees. They're missionaries. Because as they leave Jerusalem and as they settle down in new cities and towns and build new lives for themselves, they tell their new friends and neighbors all about Jesus. So Stephen's death fuels a persecution that fuels the spread of our faith. It's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. But it leads to, to more people who become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And second, Stephen's death profoundly affects a man named Saul. Saul was a member of the same synagogue as Stephen and likely was one of those who debated him unsuccessfully. And as we saw here in our Bible passage, Saul was present when Stephen was stoned and he fervently believed that Stephen's death was right and just and proper. But something about this situation really got a hold of Saul. Stephen's serenity under fire his boldness, the mercy that he displayed toward his killers. Saul can't get that out of his head. And it's not long before he has his own dramatic encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And we need to recognize that Stephen's prayer for God to have mercy on his killers became a reality in the life of a Jew named Saul. And he repents. His life is transformed. And Saul becomes the Apostle Paul and helps to spread Christianity throughout the world. And when we read through the book of Acts, we see Paul's encounter with Jesus. A dramatic encounter that takes place on the road to Damascus and we say, oh, that's where Paul was converted. But it's not where it began. It began when he stood by as a faithful Jew, and consented to the stoning of Stephen. And that moment marked him. and became a stepping stone on his own journey of faith.
Stephen's death has a lasting impact on the church and on the world. And the great tragedy, it's so sad because he is the first Christian martyr and he is not the last. And as we continue to read through the Bible, we see that martyrdom quickly comes for this young and growing Christian church. In Acts chapter 12, a disciple named James is executed for no crime other than loving Jesus. By the end of that first generation, the apostles are all gone and all of them likely died as martyrs to the faith. And over the next two centuries, as Christianity grows and spreads throughout the world, on a regular basis, believers often have to pay the price with their lives. And we need to understand that martyrdom is not just something from the history books. It is current events. We have brothers and sisters in the faith around the world today who experience overt harassment and persecution and even death. The persecution of Christian comes in a variety of forms. Sometimes it comes from governments. We saw horrible government oppression of Christians during the era of the Soviet Union. We see government oppression of Christians today in places like China and Egypt where there are official laws and regulations passed that make life extremely difficult for believers. And we're starting to see the first glimmerings of that here in our own country. Sometimes persecution comes from other faiths, such as Hindus in India, who often harass Christians and attack them and destroy their churches. And there are some Muslims who believe in violent jihad, and they act that out against other Muslims against Jews, against Christians. How do we respond? What should we do when brothers and sisters in the faith are dying for their faith in other places? And what should we do if we face persecution or even possibly death simply because we choose to follow Jesus? Stephen points the way for us. His actions recorded for us here in the Bible remind us that we cannot view people of other faiths through the lens of suspicion or hatred. We cannot give way to fear. We have to embrace the teaching of Jesus as Stephen did and pray for those who persecute us. Pray for those who persecute the church. And we only can do that if we embrace an eternal perspective and remember that we have the hope of heaven because beyond this life, there is life with God forever. And it's not always easy to think about, but what matters most is not my life or your life. What matters most is the message of Jesus. The good news that He came to die in our place. He came to die for our sins. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to show us how to live in peace and how to live with hope. That's the message we have to offer the world. It is a message of love and forgiveness and mercy. A, a message that Stephen was living and breathing and speaking until the very end. 
and followers of Jesus are asked to speak that message today. Three Sundays ago, radical Muslims bombed some churches in Cairo, Egypt on a Sunday morning as Christians gathered to worship. Scores of people were injured. Many died. Nassim Fahim was a security guard at one of the churches. And I just, I think about that. A security guard at the church that tells you the reality of what those brothers and sisters in Christ live with. Nassim died in the blast. But his actions prior to the blast saved many lives. His widow went on national TV and listen to what she said. I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you. You put my husband into a place I could not have dreamed of. Faith in Jesus, an eternal perspective, changes how we respond to suffering and persecution and lost. Amir Adib is a prominent Arab talk show host. And he heard Nassim's widow say that. And he was just shocked. And he, not a believer, sent his own message to the Christians of Egypt. How great is the forgiveness you have. If it were my father who were killed, I never could say something like this. You Christians are made of steel. And that expression of forgiveness and mercy, Amir Adib did not see weakness. He saw strength, spiritual strength, strength that he acknowledged he did not have. That's our message. And it's a radical message. And the life we're called to live is radical. And sometimes God asks his children to make a radical sacrifice. Stephen's story is a story for our time. And we need to read it and ponder it and pray over it. And if necessary, we need to be ready to follow his example.